Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Isaac Saul, editor of A+. Now, this episode is going to be unlike a lot of our previous episodes. You know, we're not going to be covering a consumer product company or a biotechnology company. We're going to be talking about news. A Plus is the media company founded by Ashton Kutcher, and it's built on a simple thesis. News today is really sad and depressing, and there should be news that tells the glass half full side of things, like the optimistic, the uplifting side of the story. And interestingly enough, it's this exact realization that inspired me to start In Good Hands and my frustration with how traditional news organizations were telling the story of climate. And in the episode, Isaac and I will discuss how his path led to leading editorial at Ashton Kutcher's media company, how and why covering good news is good business, the pros and cons of this angle of storytelling, the lingering effects of COVID on climate storytelling and the media landscape at large, and so much more. I learned a ton from Isaac in this interview, and I really think you'll feel the same way. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Isaac Saul, editor of A+. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be here. So Isaac, we have a lot of ground to cover. And as I was prepping for the interview, like I was telling you before we kickstarted today, I mean, you've done so much. There's really a lot of compelling topics we can dive into. But let's start with the basics. What is A+. It's a good question. A+, I think that the, the easiest way to define us is we're a news organization that focuses on people who are finding solutions to some of the biggest problems in the world. There's a lot of people in this space, sort of tangentially, like you have Upworthy, you have Good News Network, you have places that focus on kind of feel-good, positive news. And I think we definitely fall into that bucket. But what we sort of set out to do and our mission from the beginning was we wanted to bring a certain level of journalism and, and expertise and standards to the kind of work we were doing that was sort of a level up from some of those other places. So at least in the early days when you went to Upworthy.com, for instance, you probably saw a lot of cat videos or, you know, feel good stuff, a baby crying and then smiling and laughing and giggling over its meal and, and that sort of thing. And we had this vision of kind of taking that sort of news that people clearly seem to like and resonate with them, but but elevating in a way that was more founded in, you know, some really traditional journalism practices, deeply reported pieces, well-researched pieces, original interviews, that sort of thing. So for a long time, for about five years, that was what we were doing. We were a news outlet, a media organization, really scrappy, small team, sort of punching above our weight that touched on everything, politics, entertainment, sports, and we had this kind of undercurrent of focusing on the uplifting side of a, of a news story. So if there was, mm-hmm. you know, a big, big piece of news out there, we would sort of try and pull something that we found, like a little nugget in that piece that had some kind of positive outlook and then dig in on it and expand on it. And about a year and a half ago, we were acquired by Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, which is 
building out a media empire. They have a film company now, an independent film company. They have us. They picked up Sony Crackle, which is a streaming service. And so Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment is sort of building out this empire that has the ethos that they have and that we have. And since that acquisition, we've pivoted almost entirely to video. So basically all of our content now comes in a video form. So we're sort of have that same ethos that we've always had, but we no longer publish written articles on the site. Occasionally we do, if we want to frame a big story or do some marketing around a story, we'll pull up the old website to send out some written article links. But for the most part, we do all video now. Super interesting. Okay. So there's a couple things that I, I'd love to unpack there. Again, pivot to the specific content type, just the general thesis around telling and covering good news. But before we get there, if we rewind just a second, I mean, running the editorial function at an organization that is now reaching, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of people, connect the dots for us. Like how, how did you end up in that seat and what's kind of your personal backstory to getting there? It's very crazy. I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and I actually went to college to be a athletic trainer. I was like hell bent on being an AT. I freshman year at Pitt, I was volunteering for the division one, you know, football, basketball teams. I was taking classes on how to tape ankles and put dislocated shoulders back into place. And in high school and in my first semester of college, I'd always had this undercurrent of just the love for writing. I mean, English was always my favorite class. There are a lot of artistic people in my family, both my mom and dad's side with writing backgrounds and political backgrounds. I grew up in like a very political household. What was going on in the government was a big topic of debate all the time. And so I was writing, I was in a couple of writing classes as, you know, general electives And sort of like halfway through my freshman year, I realized that I was enjoying those classes way more than I was enjoying the athletic training track. And so to scratch that itch, I applied for a position to be a sports reporter at the University of Pittsburgh school paper. So fast forward, I guess, to sophomore year. I've got like a C plus in my bio class because I'm (laughs) competing with all these pre-med students at Pitt, which is one of the best medical schools in the country, in the world, really. And I'm going to these labs and taping ankles and doing these, you know, injury prevention type labs. I'm just realizing, like, I really don't want to be doing this in 10 years. Like, I I don't want to be taping up some 19-year-old college kid's ankle because he sprained it at practice the day before. Like, there's something about that hands-on work, I think, and that medical work that people really love and really resonates with people, and it just wasn't hitting for me. And in the meantime, I was loving this experience at the Pitt News. It was like all I cared about was writing um, and getting my stories published and seeing them in the school paper. And so I just dug in. And uh, for the next three years, I was really immersed in the school paper. I ended up becoming the editor of the sports section. And I was started writing my senior year a lot about the intersection of sports politics, culture. And, you know, it just became less like game reports and more Mm -hmm. opinion pieces. I had this column called a grain of Saul, which was like a little play on my last name. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was a senior, it was like my total identity was the school paper 
being a nonfiction writing major, wanting to write a book, wanting to be a journalism major, all these things. And so after I graduated, everyone told me, you're an English major. The thing you typically hear is like, good luck getting a job. It's going to be hard. (laughs) And I wasn't totally sure where I wanted to go with my writing career. So I actually took about six, eight months after I graduated where I moved to Israel and I lived in Jerusalem and I was living in a religious school, yeshiva, which was like a very formative experience for me. And on the weekends, I'm traveling all over Israel into Egypt during the uprising in 2013, 2014. And I'm experiencing all these like incredible world events. Israel and Syria were in a very tense place then. And I was writing about it. I was sending emails home to like 100, 150 friends and family. And people were writing back to me just like, I love this. Like, I wait every week for your email. You should be turning this into a book or like a collection of essays. And so I started sending out these emails as cover letters. I basically was cutting them down into one pagers that were just stories about things I was seeing in in the places I traveled in the Middle East And on a long shot, like Hail Mary, towards the end of this six or seven month internship, I sent a a cover letter to the Huffington Post. And it was basically the story of me following some random Israeli professor I met, met into northern Egypt. And when we got there and... I just wrote about meeting them and what my experience was like talking to them as like an American Jew and their experiences, younger Muslim kids growing up during this crazy time in Egypt. And I applied for a fellowship at the Huffington Post that like 10,000 students applied to and writers, and they took like 40 people. And I ended up getting an interview and then came home for the final interviews. I flew back and did my trip in Israel because I was getting some signals that I was in contention and this was like an extremely competitive thing. So I got it. It was like the end all be all for me. I was like, I've made the mountaintop. And then it was like, (laughs) all right, we're going to pay you $10 an hour and you're going to work like 50 hours a week. And I had to commute from Philadelphia. I was living with my mom coming up on the train every day to New York, two hours each way. And probably like five or six months into this internship, I had a column, a a sports politics column actually blow up about the football player, Richard Sherman. It was basically like a, I wrote a defense of him because he was being criticized for this post-game blow up he had. I don't know. Uh Are you you a football I remember that. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. He he had gotten the game-winning interception against the Niners and, you know, they stuck a mic in his face and he basically said, I'm the best corner in the game. Nobody can stop me. That's what you get for trying me. Uh-huh. And the next day, all the talk on the sports radio in New York and ESPN was like, he's a thug. He's a disgrace to the game. He's, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I basically wrote this column telling the actual story of Richard Sherman, which is that he grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods in all of America. He went to the high school with the lowest graduation rate of any high school in America. And he landed at Stanford and became the best defensive player on the Stanford football team, had like a 3.8 GPA in school. And instead of going to the draft after four years, stayed an extra year to get his business degree and is now like the most charitable player in the NFL. And I was basically like, gave everybody the middle finger and was like, this is the guy 
that you all say should be the role model. It's, you know, strap your boots up and get to work and climb out from that horrible life situation you were born into. And he did it. And now because he says that he's the best player in the NFL or best cornerback in the game, which he was at the time, everyone starts calling him a thug. And so the column blew up and I went on CNN and it was sort of like my first moment. Wow. Yeah. And that was kind of my breakthrough. That was like the big thing for me. I, I went on TV. I had a debate with Terrence Moore on CNN. I, I like to think I kind of smoked him, to be honest. It was a <laughs> testy conversation, but I felt pretty good about it afterwards, especially it being my first experience on national TV. And it got me a lot of attention. And just serendipitously around the same time that this all happened for me and a bunch of my writing was getting a lot of traction and a lot of views, Ashton Kutcher was building out this website and he had this idea. It was sort of launched in his basement with two programmers and another writer who I'm still very good friends with. I was actually texting him this morning and he created a program. He had these programmers basically scrape the internet for the most trafficked authors online. And when they scraped all these authors, my name popped up as like a top 10 trafficked author on the internet over the last few months. And so I got an email from a guy who said, I'm a business partner of Ashton Kutcher's. We're launching this media company. We're looking for young studs and we want you on board. Do you have time for a phone call? And I sort of thought it was like one of those phishing scams, you know? <laughs> I was like, no, I don't. And I'm not giving you my email or like downloading this attachment or whatever. But I actually called my mom and she was like, you have to at least take the call and see what they say, you know? And so on the very first phone call, and Ashton was on the call with these with the the business partners who reached out to me. I mean, I picked up the phone, they introduced themselves, and then they said, hold on one second, and they looped Ashton in, which, you know, I, I grew up in the early aughts. Like, I watched that 70s show. It was like mm -hmm. a little, little bit like of a starstruck moment hearing him on the other line. And, you know, he was already a big VC and, and making a lot of really smart investments. So I viewed him as like a smart, powerful, capable person. And he basically pitched me on his image for, for this news organization, which was like, I open the news and I read the news every day and it makes me depressed. It doesn't matter what I'm reading, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, People Magazine. I open the news and I feel horrible when I'm done reading and mm -hmm. I want to change that. And, and he had this vision, this like very core, simple thing, which was like, I want to make a news outlet where when you're done reading, you don't feel terrible. And I loved it. I was like, you know what? I, I, I felt very much like the news world was sick in that way. And, and I agreed with him and, you know, they offered me a salary bump. They said, you can be a small fish in a big sea over there, or you can come over here and put your fingerprints on something and help us build this thing. And you're going to work a lot and it's going to be really hard, but we'll pay you better and you'll get to drive the ship a little bit. Wow. And I, you know, I was 23, 24 and I was like, hell yeah, sign me up. I'm in. So I left Huffington Post to start a plus that was the summer of 2014. It was August, 2014, I think. So yeah, I've been there for coming up on six years now. Wow. I mean, here, a couple uh, immediate reactions. One, obviously, I mean, that exact realization around opening news and then feeling instantly bad 
is what motivated me to start in good hands. I felt the same way about how news was covering climate. And I think you kind of triggered me a little bit because I I remember, and I hadn't (laughs) thought about it in years, but that the Richard Sherman story was really one of the more important memories I can remember in sports in many years. And I remember that being one of the most poignant. And as you told it, I actually started to get chills. And I think it's a good segue because what that kind of storytelling approach insists is that you, at least inherently, even before you crossed paths with A+, had this kind of inherent desire to tell the glass half full side of things, right? The, 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 the type of story that these other organizations and TV hosts and radio hosts weren't telling. And what I want to better understand, and I'm going to regurgitate what the naysayers say about our type of organization is that, you know, yes, good news is great. People like seeing cat videos and things of this nature, but it's not where the eyeballs are, right? You look at Fox, you look at CNN, anytime you flip open to one of these channels or go to one of their social accounts, it's breaking news about something that's horrible. So what do you say to people who stick to their guns in it? They're like, what, how can covering the glass half full side of things be good business? It's really hard. I'll tell you that right now. I've been just upfront. I mean, A plus had a really successful run in a lot of ways. And my former boss, the managing editor we had here for a few years, who now works at Time Magazine, Kate Matthews, she's a huge mentor of mine. Even though we worked together at Huffington Post, she was actually younger than me, but she was kind of like, she's one of these like child prodigal people who like graduated college in two years and you just hate because they're so smart <laughs> and level-headed. And, and she came over to A plus, I basically suggested to the founders when we were building out the team, I was like, we want her. She is exactly the kind of responsible, smart, hardworking, really, really, really sharp person we want to be leading the team. And she came over and they saw it after a month of her being on the team and sort of gave her the reins of the, the editorial team, which I was totally happy about because... I knew that I couldn't do what she was going to do. Um, And she always said that we were punching above our weight. We had to be scrappy because not only were we trying to sell a different story, but we were also going to battle with these news organizations that have hundreds of people on their staff when we had five or 10. At the most, we had like 30 or 35. And the truth is sort of what you're alluding to, you know, no matter how you frame it, there's something about the human nature that if there are two stories on Facebook next to each other and one of them is about, you know, 50 children dying in a bus crash and the other one's about a new invention that's going to help reduce carbon emissions, people are always going to click on the bus crash. Or at least they they have the urge initially to and maybe they they stop themselves because they're like, this is the third horrible story like this I've read today. But there's something there and there's been tons of studies about this and there's a lot of really interesting a lot of really interesting data about people clicking into those stories but what's really fascinating and something that 
I learned from doing this work and from reading a lot of these studies and insights about people and something a lot of other news organizations have figured out is that while people are more interested in clicking into their stories and they might get more traffic, people are more likely to share stories that have a kind of uplifting or solutions core. So if there's like a story that, you know, is about the bus crash, right? But inside that story, there's a solution about how, you know, the the regulations for bus drivers need to be changed so that they're only working 40 hours a week and not 60 hours a week so they don't fall asleep at the wheel and crash the bus. That story is going to be shared more than the one that doesn't have that. And this was an insight that was actually drawn out by the Solutions Journalism Network, which is a place I reference often because Tina Rosenberg, who works at the New York Times and writes the weekly column, The Fix, she sort of launched this organization that has done a a lot of really interesting research about this stuff. And they train newsrooms all over the world about inserting this sort of like positive solutions-based stuff into their work. And they did a few trainings with us. And it's a really interesting, important insight is that, you know, like you said, it's, there's an element of it that is really difficult business. It's hard to sell, but there's also an element of it that's good for business, which is this kind of sharing part of it. And, you know, you have to walk a fine line and you have to get really creative about how you bring people in and how you get them to click on the story and read it in the first place. And you got to know your audience. You have to know what the core part of the story is to sort of get that engagement, but it's totally possible. And despite the kind of naysayers who have some good evidence to work off of to say, this doesn't sell, this doesn't work. Chicken Soup for the Soul, for example, is a really good example of proving that those people are wrong. I mean, the crux of every piece of content they've made since my mom was reading those books you know, or had them in our bathroom or on our dining room table when I was five years old is that there's like an uplifting story to tell here about whatever their topic is, whatever, however their book is themed. And that brand is still around. Those books, they're Chicken Soup for the Soul is one of the only print publishers in the world who continuously sees year over year increase in their print sales. I mean, they bought us partially because they wanted to have a digital footprint, but that's like a perfect example of a brand that 90% of Americans know, they recognize the name and it's because some people need that. They need the the chicken soup for the soul. You know, they need that, that kind of, that piece of news that sort of fills them up or that piece of writing that f- fills them up. And we'll, we're seeing it right now during the coronavirus. You know, I was on mm-hmm. CNN.com the other day and I got a pop up for a good news a good news newsletter, which is some good targeting advertisement on CNN's part. They obviously know I'm trafficking in that space or whatever, but they're also putting money into that. And they're recognizing that in this moment, you know, one of the largest news organizations in the world is seeing that right now people want good news. They want to feel something and read something that makes them feel good. And, you know, that's, that's a takeaway that I think is true all the time. But Mm -hmm. news organizations are sort of just coming around to it now because the news is so horrible and it's so bad and it's so scary that they're like, oh, we better give people something to kind of wash us down with. This is so interesting, both on the tactical observations, your references to the research. I actually, I can't remember 
the interview I listened to or the article, but I know that there was some type of research that came out of Facebook's research group that talks about the average person who's scrolling through the feed leaves feeling worse than they did before they started scrolling. But those who actually participated in content, whether it was actually creating something of their own or commenting, they left either the same or better. And I I don't know when that was published, maybe a couple of years ago. But what I'm noticing over the last few months um, is that the organization's telling the glass half full side of things, covering these uplifting, inspiring stories are dominating news feeds. I know Kristen Bell is constantly, you know, reposting content from, uh, it's another good news Instagram account. There's uh, Tank who runs another good news account. John Krasinski just started yeah. his own good news channel. I mean, is there, a ch- like, is this a turning point in storytelling and news coverage, like how significant is COVID in relation to like being able to cover news in a profitable and meaningful way? Like how, how important is this time within the kind of greater context of news coverage and storytelling? You know, I think a lot of things are going to change after this. And I think news organizations will absolutely see the impact of having positive or feel good news. You know, it's simultaneously infuriating and really great to see because like on the one hand, it's great to see because this is obviously something I fundamentally believe in. And the the mission of our news organization is something I fundamentally believe in. It's something I've invested six years of my life into. And here are the firsthand testimonials from A plus readers, from friends of mine who read A plus from people I've interviewed for A plus stories who say like, it's so refreshing and I love this and it makes me feel so good and it gives me hope. And this is the first story I've read about X, Y, or Z that makes me feel like maybe everything's not awful. So that to see all these other news organizations adopt that kind of angle right now is really cool. But it's also infuriating because it's like, you've been building this thing for six years and then John Krasinski starts an Instagram page and he has like 7 million views every yes. night. And it's just like, oh, dude, like we would kill for that kind of engagement. But, you know, I believe the world needs it. And I believe it'll be good for people, you know, their mental health right now to get that kind of news. And it's also infuriating because I'm seeing like all these people cut the corner on six years of work and just jump to a, a spot, at least from like a data and analytics number where some of our content has worked so hard to get. But there's no doubt it works. I mean, I had this up on my computer because I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. And it feels worth just reading this, which is from the Solutions Journalism Network website. And they say a BBC survey found that 64% of survey responders under 35 wanted solutions-oriented news rather than just news that tells them about issues. Focus groups in South Central LA found that residents there had a strong desire for solutions-oriented news. And several studies have found that people are more inclined to share positive content than negative content. And there's early evidence people linger on the page longer when they're reading solutions journalism. So this is real social science data stuff that backs this idea, which is that 
it, it can be good for business, um, especially when you're measuring the quality of your content by things like time on page or shareability, that sort of thing. And it hits, it resonates with people. I mean, we, I see it every day in real world examples. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is a duh argument, but when, when we talk about how does this manifest in a business model, I think the value of deep engagement and sharing is much higher than a view and impression. For sure. Right? It's just, it's, it's, there's no debate. What I, what I want to explore a little bit further, and I'm actually really interested in your take here. So obviously, here at In Good Hands, we cover climate solutions, right? And, and I, we have the same thesis as A+, right? We cover the story that isn't being told, the solution and the progress. But what I'm noticing, at least during today's times and one of my concerns kind of after the economy reopens and things go back to you know quasi normalcy do you think that there's going to be any lingering effects of the kind of general population's interest or kind of openness to <laughs> changing their habits learning about climate like what is the toll on climate news and storytelling after we go back to some semblance of normalcy, if you had to try to predict? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one thing I think almost certainly is going to happen is we're going to see a ton of studies released in the next couple months that tell us about how the environment is changing now that people are locked in their homes. You know, we, we're seeing it anecdotally. We saw it almost immediately in these little anecdotal fun viral stories, how, you know, I'm sure you saw people in Venice were seeing fish in the canals there and they could see clear to the bottom of the canals for the first time in, you know, a hundred years. They're interviewing these old Italian men who have said they've never seen the water this clear before and they're 90 years old. They've lived in Venice their whole lives. We're seeing preliminary studies from places like NASA saying that the air pollutants and the carbon emissions across the US and China and India have all plummeted because nobody's driving, nobody's out on the roads. And we're going to get a lot of data in the next few weeks that we could never get. I mean, stuff that we'd only been able to model up to this point about what happens when you reduce the the sort of human footprint on the planet for a month or two months. And I think when we come out on the other end of that, it's not going to be like a theoretical, hey, what if you know we s- replace 5 million cars with 5 million electric cars? How does that change carbon emissions? It's going to be, we know exactly what happened when 2 million cars were off the road for you know a month. And this is the impact that it had. And and here's what happens if we do that for a year instead of a month. And that kind of light at the end of the tunnel, I think, could absolutely change the paradigm of the conversation because the, the most common refrain from people who aren't just like climate, you don't have to be a climate denier or a skeptic to ask reasonable questions about, you know, what's the cost benefit of something like stopping our use of gas guzzling cars and switching over to electric vehicles. But what they, what they often lean on is like, this is all hypothetical. You know, we're taking these cars off the road in these fancy models that the average person can't wrap their hands around. I can't, I, even I, who spend so much time immersed in this kind of information, when I actually open and read a real NASA study 
there's some point where like the math and the models are things that are a little over my head and I'm just kind of trust falling like, all right, these guys are from NASA. Like they know what they're talking mm-hmm. about. So I believe mm-hmm. this, which I think is totally fine. But for a lot of Americans, it's like, I'm not going to sub in my, you know, 1980 Chevy Tahoe for a, a hypothetical model. And does that change when people get to see the real data and the real information from a time period like this? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm hopeful mm-hmm. a little bit at least. And I think like that that's the number one thing that I'm going to be keeping an eye on is how this changes the conversation and what kind of like hard evidence conclusions we get on the other end of this because we are never going to get a moment like this again. I mean, this is never going to happen in any of our lifetimes. I'm, I'm almost certain, I hope to God, and I'm pretty certain that this is never going to happen again. So the mm-hmm. data that we're collecting now is totally unique and I think has the potential to, to totally change the conversation. I think, so in the last week, I think I read what I believe is the most profound or interesting article that I can remember in, in recent time. And it was actually out of a, one of Yale's school papers. They were interviewing a guy who's been studying what he's dubbed the spillover effect. And I don't know if you're familiar, but the spark notes is he's trying to answer the question, why has the rate of viral transmission from wild animals to humans increased? And he's been covering and trying to to answer this question for decades now. And what he discovered, and if we were to explore the coronavirus specifically, you know, this one started with bats. And just as a fun fun fact, one out of every four mammals on Earth is a bat species. And the the reason why bats are notorious for transmitting diseases is A, they live for a long period of time, 18 to 20 years. But two, they also live with thousands of other bats and they fly around. And what we're learning is as the human population starts to industrialize rainforest areas, you know, chopping them down to harvest our own animals and livestock, there's a whole vogue food culture in Eastern Asian countries where they'll eat raccoons and bats. But the point is that because of humans' interference with the natural world, we're seeing more and more wild animals interact with humans. So the thing that I've been thinking about is there's actually a pretty compelling argument that could be made around climate not just being a way to make sure we can you know, stop the world from getting warmer and disrupting ecosystems, but it's actually fundamentally tied with public health crises, right? Let's stop. I mean, it's, it's it's a relatively unflushed out idea of mine, but I think there needs to be more conversation around that because now that people understand and have felt the toll of a global pandemic like COVID, I think if people were to understand how it's tied with the way that humans interact with the natural world and that the likelihood of these things happening more and more frequently is because of that. And I think there's something really 
really compelling there. Yeah, no, I find that super compelling. And I think it's going to be, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have said about coronavirus and COVID-19 and and comparing it to climate change is we're sort of watching this sped up version of the experts giving us warnings, people being in denial, the real thing coming around to fruition, and then like a, a... a population leaning on the experts now, you know, I've seen some really interesting polling just from a political standpoint that people like Dr. Fauci, who is the only epidemiologist that's gotten a ton of FaceTime on the coronavirus task force is like, he has like 80% approval ratings across the U S very bipartisan, really rare thing that both Democrats and Republicans support him or view him as being really trustworthy. And it's sort of like the the shit hits the fan and now everybody's kind of leaning on the experts, which one might imagine that in a world where we're more concerned about the intersection of animals and humans because of climate change, because of this encroachment on certain environments, that your average Joe who doesn't totally understand how I can get a disease from a bat or a pig or a cow or whatever is is not going to trust their neighbor about that information. They're going to lean on the experts. And when the experts have a good plan or a good body of evidence to support what they're saying, like they do in the case of climate change, maybe that changes the paradigm a little bit. I mean, I, I think it's definitely an optimistic outlook, but I absolutely think that there's there's something happening right now. There's a change in mindset and there's such a paralytic fear that's spreading that people are are really winnowing down what they trust and what they don't trust. And it's sort of showing that when push comes to shove, a lot of people are choosing the people that they should choose, which is these experts in their fields, you know? Super interesting. All right, Isaac, I think we could go on forever. I mean, I'd love to jam. I mean, we clearly... Uh, have a very similar philosophy and worldview. I think we could jam for a while on all things A plus coverage and climate. What I want to do is actually segue off of those two things and just a little bit about your personal background. I think you were you were humble in in talking about your your personal background and your story. I'm on your site now and I recall, I mean, a number of these articles that you've put out are I mean, top notch. And it's there's no surprise why they've been picked up by some of the biggest publications in the world. My question for you is, what story or article that you published are you most proud of? Man, that's a really difficult question to answer. I think there's probably two that really stick out. I think the clear number one, the one that I most proud of because it was one of the first times I saw my work change public policy was a piece that I wrote about predatory payday loans, which was really is kind of like an essential piece of writing to understand, I think, personally, the A-plus brand and the mission, because we were tackling a really difficult, tragic subject, which is how people are taken advantage of when they take out payday loans. It's also something not a lot of Americans understand. You know, there are 
There are more payday lenders in America than there are McDonald's. They are everywhere. They're highly concentrated in every major urban area, and they also exist in a lot of urban or rural places across the U.S., and a lot of these places are really, really, really shady. And I wrote a story. I worked with some finance guys, some experts from Nerd Wallet, which is a great company. And we produced this piece where I basically shopped myself around to various payday lenders and asked about taking out a loan and asked really specific pointed questions about the risks and basically published what they told me, which amounted to a lot of BS and lies, and then sort of compared what they were telling me with previous reporting about these places and their practices and the kind of interest rate people pay on these loans and how it traps them in a cycle of debt. And I interviewed a lot of people who had taken out the loans and and basically had their lives ruined by them. And I published a story and it blew up. It, it was shared widely through A plus and Arab platforms. And it ended up actually being cited by Congress in a call to have universities and retirement portfolios, places like BlackRock or whatever, who had investment in these predatory payday lenders to pull their investments out. And it worked. A lot of them did. Colleges like Harvard University, some fire departments in New Jersey who had put money into these payday lenders, pulled their money out when they saw some of this reporting. So it was one of the first times that my reporting actually had like a direct line to changing public policy. And that's definitely one of the first ones that comes to mind. And I, th- I think probably the second one that I'd have to put up there with that is I wrote an endorsement of Hillary Clinton, which was an op-ed in 2016, after I'd written a story basically writing about why I'd never vote for her. And it was sort of like an apology because after months of reflection and reading and research and writing about the election, I had changed my mind slightly about her. And I changed my mind enough that I decided that I thought it was worth going back on this piece that I had written. And I endorsed her, which like everybody's politics are very nuanced and I don't necessarily want to get into that, but I I wrote an endorsement of her on A+, and it got like 4 million views. And she actually wrote me a letter thanking me for changing my mind about her. And Yahoo, you know, named me one of the people who shaped the 2016 election because of the piece. And it felt like it was a reflective piece where I was writing critically about myself and kind of apologizing about this criticism I had lobbied earlier while also sticking to my guns about certain issues that I had with her. And it just resonated with people. And I think it was one of the more honest pieces of opinion writing I've ever published. And it was really rewarding to see it kind of come back and and people feel gratitude for me taking the the tack that I took. So I was really proud of that piece. And I, and I, I thought it was cool that it, it sort of entered the conversation in the election. Wow. I was actually, right before we we hopped on the conversation, I finished reading the the predatory payday loan piece. Super interesting. Actually, I also watched a video you did. I'm blinking on where it was. It wasn't Lebanon, maybe Syria. And it was Western media's coverage of, of women. I mean... I, I honestly recommend anyone anyone who's listening, go to A plus, go to Isaac's personal website. Just the the amount of work, the breadth, and the kind of scope of 
what you've been able to accomplish is really, really impressive. I want to to ask two more questions. One is a little bit selfish, but I I really want to get your advice. Obviously, we we subscribe to the same philosophies, and I'm trying my best to showcase uh, a brighter narrative around climate and trying to navigate it during a time like this is a little bit tricky, I think, for all orgs. But kind of what is what do you think is the most the highest impact advice you have for me as the steward for In Good Hands? You know, I guess I'll share with you a piece of advice I got that that has really guided me for my career. And it's something that I share with um, other people whenever I get a chance, which is just don't go where the crowd is. And, and I know that there's kind of like a corny general advice that's out there like that. Like, don't follow the crowd. Don't be like that. But I actually mean that uh, a lot more literally related to doing work in media and especially doing work on this kind of coverage, which is there's a story in journalism where there's a car accident on the street and in five minutes, all the camera crews are there and all the local newspaper guys and the national news organizations are fighting to get this shot of the burning car. And they're all like packed in shoulder to shoulder, taking the same picture, getting the same video, interviewing the same police officer, all with their mics in his face. And those journalists, in my opinion, are not very good at their jobs. The the smart one is the one who leaves that crowd, you know, and walks across the street to the store owner who's standing on the outskirts of the melee for the the shot of the burning car and asks that store owner what they saw, what they heard, what happened. And he says, you know, weird, before the cops showed up, I, I saw this guy bail and like run from the car. And then you're like, oh, let me see your security footage. And you look at it and it's a politician who was in the car that crashed and he left the scene. And you get that story because you didn't follow the crowd. You literally went in the opposite direction everyone was going. And I think what's going to be really interesting about climate change coverage, especially after this coronavirus mess is over, God willing, hopefully soon, is everybody is going to gravitate to a certain story. And it might be the story that I told, which is what happened with the emissions data when there were no cars on the road. And I would say, just don't go to that story that everyone's going to, because it's really easy to do that. And there's going to be a really interesting, important story that nobody's telling. And if you kind of follow that blob of reporters and climate change reporters and people who are all going to run to that easy story that they can get up, um, you're going to miss the one that that's probably more impactful and more important. So that would be my advice. Man, that is beautiful. I'm generally moved by that. That, that is what it, what an amazing way to communicate a lesson in a story that, I don't know, that one, that one just really stuck with me. So two more questions for you, Isaac. So I just, I discovered Tangle, which is another project that you've been working on. But I think I do a poor job of telling our listeners about it. Can you just tell the In Good Hands community, you know, what is Tangle and kind of what inspired you to to start that? Sure. Well, first off, thank you. I'm glad that advice resonated with you. The first time I heard it, it also moved me, which is why I share it when I get a chance to, because it was like a very formative 
Tangle is a politics newsletter that I started. So for most of my career at A+, I was mostly a politics reporter. That was kind of my beat on the team after we sort of hired and expanded out. For the first year or two, I covered everything and anything under the sun that sort of fit our brand. But once we built out our team, I took the politics reporting beat. And when we went through our acquisition with Chicken Soup for the Soul, since we stopped publishing written articles on the site, I sort of was just looking for a way to scratch that itch because I write the video scripts and I help work as sort of an editorial guidance on where our videos are going to go and what's the story we're going to tell and what stories are we going to cover. But, you know, writing is sort of my craft, longer form writing. And so I started this newsletter, which was kind of born out of a similar ethos that A plus was, which is I saw this big problem, which is that in the news media world, everybody's getting their information, specifically in the political reporting world, everyone's getting their information from different sources because people trust news organizations based on what their political affiliations are. So if you're a conservative and and polls and data for 10 years have borne this out, you are a lot more trustworthy of the Wall Street Journal or Fox News or maybe a Bloomberg than you are of the New York Times or the Washington Post. If you're like a really hard left leaner or a really hard right leaner, uh, you're going to go to sites like the Huffington Post and Breitbart and very, very rarely will people with those political leanings cross over. And that's not good. (laughs) That is not good for the country. It's not good for our government. It's not good for voters. It means people are pulling information and data and and literally living in two different truths. And I kind of had this vision to build something that brought those truths under the same roof. And that thing is Tangle, which is, I say it's a nonpartisan politics newsletter, but that's kind of just because that's the parlance for independence and balance that Americans are familiar with. The truth is, it's kind of like all partisan. Basically, I frame every story. Every day I tell the story of the day, what DC is talking about. I lay out the facts at the top, just like the best that I can, the most balanced language I can use. I tell you what people are talking about, why they're talking about it, and what we know about this thing, which is the hardest part of the story to write because that's supposed to be the down the middle part. Um, And then I say what the left is saying, what the right is saying, and what my take is. So I sort of deconstruct the news based on how each political side is framing this issue. And I elevate like the best arguments that I think exist. So I'm not just like, I'm not taking what the most common thing is people are saying or what the loudest thing people are saying, because often those takes that are really crappy are being elevated and getting the most traction. I take what I genuinely find to be the most convincing and compelling arguments that conservatives and liberals are making about the story of the day. And then I am very transparent about my own political views and what I think of the story and why I think that. And, you know, try to be introspective about like where my biases are and what my experiences are that make me feel that way about the story. And that's sort of like the main crux of the newsletter that people really love. And then I answer a reader question every day. Uh, So people write in all the time with political questions, questions about the news, questions about my process. I write up an answer to that. And then I share some cool numbers and like a story that's gotten buried in the news by whatever the big like tabloid-like headline is. So 
you know, Trump's tweets own the day a lot of the times. What's the story that people aren't talking about that's actually really important and is going to impact a lot of Americans? I'll include that. And then in the spirit of A+, I kind of wash it all down with a really good news hit. So the last thing in every newsletter, oftentimes their A-plus stories is just like a piece of good news to kind of read before you you finish the newsletter because the world's crazy and, and everybody needs that. So this is sort of like my side hustle. Uh, I, I launched it on Substack. I wake up at 5 a.m. every day to write it before I get to work for A+. And then kind of on my lunch break, I edit it and make some updates and then blast it out. And, you know, I work like 14, 16-hour days to get it done because I have a full-time job that's really demanding and takes up a lot of my time. But it's really fun. It's great to keep my, my writing chops sharp. And it's also cool because people like it. It's like, uh, I've had a lot of people read in, I've, you know, three or 4,000 subscribers now it's growing, it's small, but a lot of people write in and they're like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Like, I hate the news. I've got 10 minutes a day. Every newsletter is about an eight to 10 minute read. And it's like, you know, people have lives. They can't follow this stuff. They can't read five New York times articles and five wall street journal articles. So I try and distill it down make it a short 10 minute conversational read and make sure that I'm presenting both sides of the argument. And it really resonates. People really like that. They're like, I don't trust anything I see on TV. I've been looking for something like this. So it's really cool. And if people want, they can subscribe tangle.substack.com. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a cool little project. It's, it takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. Isaac. Wow. What a conversation. I could go on for, for hours and hours with you, and I think we should, maybe on another episode. Um, but I think what what I'd love to do before we part ways is just roll out the red carpet. You know, Is there any final call to actions, anything you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, look, thank you really for having me. Um, I appreciate you giving me an hour to, to talk about myself. It's always fun going down, down memory lane. Look, I, you know, my, my call to action is go follow a plus on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, look up a plus aplus.com and, you know, take in that news and actually try and internalize it. You know, there are a lot of really smart people and a lot of really well-intentioned people doing a lot of really good things all over the world. I think we could all do more to elevate those stories and elevate the people who are trying to fix things and not the people who are breaking things. There's a ton of them out there. I promise you, I see it every day in my work. And uh, yeah, I think just like as a, as a global citizenry, we can we can do more of that. And, you know, even with climate change and for your listeners who are really interested in that topic, there's a ton of optimistic and good news out there related to the people who are trying to address this thing. And it's it's one of the great challenges of our time. But, you know, if we do more to elevate those solutions as a collective, I think we'll be a, a step closer to kind of turning things around in a new direction. So I'm really hopeful for that. Wow. Man, Isaac. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It was a blast. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode. 
and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.